Bible, you're looking for page 839, 840, somewhere in that range uh, this morning. And so uh, I'd just like to say a, a happy belated Thanksgiving to everyone. I am so thankful for uh, you all and this church and this community of people that God has put together. So uh, thank you to everybody here and for everybody who calls this place home, for everybody who has visited, for everybody who just... Um, is part of this community in some form or fashion. Thank you very much. And especially uh, thank you to our community group leaders. Our community groups uh, are a big part of what we are doing here, a big part of building relationships, building connections, uh, finding ways to serve one another, finding ways to care for one another and really uh, engage in each other's lives. And so for everybody who is a community group leader, thank you. Thank you for putting in the time and the energy to care and love for our people, um, to really help shepherd our people together. And so uh, thank you for everybody who is a community group leader. Um, This morning, uh, as I said, we're going to continue in Mark 5. We're going to continue walking through the book of Mark. And today's passage is a little bit of a unique one for us. It's a little bit different for us. We're going to see as we jump in. Um, It is a story. It is something that we've seen already happen a couple of times in that Jesus has an encounter with a demon-possessed man. We've already seen this three or four times in Mark. Uh, But this one is a little bit different, and we'll get into that uh, as, we, as we read, um, but this one is different because it shows us and reveals to us and challenges us to put ourselves in the shoes of the demon-possessed man and to really reveal our own need for Jesus, our own need for him in our lives, and so that's where we're going this morning. I'm going to pray, and then we will jump in and read through uh, Mark 5, so please buy your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another chance to worship you, for another chance to celebrate you, for another chance to be together uh, as a community and to lift up our voices, to open your word, to lift up our prayers to you. Um, God, we thank you for a building. We thank you for giving us a location, for giving us heat, for giving us lights, for giving us um, all the things that uh, we sometimes take for granted and ignore, uh, Lord, these things that you have gifted us and blessed us with. Lord, this morning we come, like we do every Sunday, we come to fellowship, yes, we come to spend time together, but we come to do that uh, to glorify you, to make much of you, to learn and hear from you, uh, to experience and, and engage with you. Uh, so God, as we open your word, as we um, study it, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to understand. Um, Lord, we pray that you would do Whatever it is you need to do in us this morning, Lord, encourage us, challenge us, rebuke us, um, motivate us, do the things that your word uh, is meant to do as the living and acting, active word of God. As I preach this morning, Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. All right, so I'm going to read the whole uh, passage, the whole passage of this encounter with the demon, and then we'll go back and kind of walk through it together. So uh, Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often, bo- often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? 
I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. So if you've been with us through the book of Mark, you know that Mark is not one for details. Mark doesn't really usually give us a whole lot uh, of filler information, right? He's not one to use a lot of words. He's kind of bare bones. I mean, like, you think back to chapter 1. Jesus gets baptized. Think about how big of a deal that was, right? Jesus shows up out in the wilderness where there's this prophet who, there hasn't been a prophet in hundreds and hundreds of years. John the Baptist is preaching and, and baptizing people. Jesus shows up. He gets baptized. God the Father audibly speaks God the Son is there in the water about to start his ministry. The Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, shows up and descends on Jesus. It's this big, awesome, massive moment that starts Jesus' ministry. And Mark explains it like this. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Not a whole lot there. Three verses. I used more words to explain it than Mark did. But now we come to this. We come to Jesus' encounter with a demonic person. Something we have seen in Mark already two or three different times, like I said. And this gets 20 verses. This gets paragraphs. Why? I believe that this account, whether Mark knew it or not, is a timeless example of humanity. It is a timeless picture of what the kingdom of God is about. It is a timeless picture of what Jesus is about and his mission to go to war with Satan, to bring the kingdom of earth, to destroy Satan and all of, all of his power. Really what this is, with all due respect to the Pearson family, this is us. And so what we see is that Jesus shows up from in this country of the Gerasenes. He's, remember last week we saw he was crossing the sea with the disciples. And he shows up and he encounters this demon-possessed man. Really, this demon-possessed man comes running to him. This is a human being. This is a person made in the image and likeness of God. In him, the imago Dei, the image of God, dwells. God formed this man. God sculpted this man. He was intentionally made with unique gifts and talents and abilities. And somewhere along the way, these things were stripped from him. 
We don't know how it happened. We don't know what exactly he did. But somewhere along the way, he is possessed by demons. It says in verse 3 that no one could bind him anymore. Which means he had been bound. Bound multiple times. Shackles and chains, he was tied up, he was locked up. Because he had been a threat to others and a threat to himself. It's the kind of thing we hear in our own society, right? Someone who we can't control, someone who is clearly different, is clearly has issues, well, we'll just put them away. We'll just lock them up and hide them away from the world. But it says no one could bind him anymore. Over time, he wasn't getting weaker, he was getting stronger. He was breaking chains, he was destroying shackles. And so somehow he ends up living his days out amongst the tombs, literally walking amongst the dead, left to his own devices. In verse 4, at the end of verse 4, it says that no one could subdue him. That word subdue is a word you would use when you were taming a wild animal. When you were trying to capture and tame a horse, you would use this word subdue. You don't use that word about a human being. But that's how they treated him. That's how he acted. Luke's gospel, Luke's account of this story tells us that he spent most of his time naked, running around, unclothed, unkempt, screaming out. He wandered the tombs, crying out, cutting himself, self-mutilating, self-mutilating himself. He was tortured and tormented by his own hands. This man is helpless, hopeless. He is alienated even from his own mind. He is trapped by the control of these demons in his very being, in his very soul. This is an illustration. This is a picture of what it looks like to be apart from God. The Apostle Paul says it in Ephesians 2. You don't have to turn there. Ephesians 2 says... In Ephesians, he he spends chapter 1 talking about how you have this new identity in God, but then he goes into Ephesians 2 and Paul says, I want to remind you where you came from. I want to remind you what you were saved from. And he says this in verse 1, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You were dead. Satan followers, living by your own passions, doing whatever you wanted by nature, children of wrath. Helpless, hopeless, alienated, and trapped. This is the situation we find ourselves in apart from God picture of this man is a vivid and graphic illustration of what it looks like to be separated from the God who made you and knows you and loves you. Now you might hear that and say, well, that's not me. I'm not demon-possessed. I'm not attacking people. I'm not attacking myself. I'm here. I'm wearing pants. This guy has nothing to do with me. You're right. You might not be possessed by a demon. But you and I are still very much trapped, still very much trapped by our own sin nature. I had the joy during the week. I had a lot of family come into town. I had family. We haven't all been together on my mom's side. We haven't all been together in years. Um, And so there was cousins and there's little ones running around and um, got to see people I don't see very often. And in between, you know, catching up on how things have been and plans for the future, there were these instructions 
being said throughout the house. Make sure you eat all your food. Make sure you share. Play nice. Be good. Stop doing that. Seriously, stop doing that. Sit down. Don't throw that. Why? Because we are by nature rebels against God. We are by nature rebels. We by nature want to do things our own way. You don't have to teach a child how to be selfish. You have to teach them how to share. You don't have to teach a child how to not throw a tantrum when they don't get what they want. You have to teach them patience. You have to teach them to be calm. Because that's our default wiring. We are trapped in this world where we live with this sin built into us. And then on top of that, we live in a world that has been marred and broken and attacked by sin on a regular basis. So yeah, you might not be a demon-possessed man living amongst the tombs, but you are still trapped in your own sin because sin alienates us from God. It distracts, it destroys, it disengages us from the community with others and with God. We see it in this man. He is alienated and isolated, away from everyone, literally living amongst the dead. And the more we embrace sin, the more room we give it to grow, the more it chokes out the life and light of God in our own lives. And so after we get this backstory of this man, in verse 6 it says he shows up to Jesus. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, crying out with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. It says he fell down before him. He laid prostrate. This demon, we don't know how much is the man is in control, the demons are in control, but this is not worship. This is not worship in the sense of worship out of joy and hope and adoration. This is worship as an act of submission. This is being in the presence of the king. This is when you're driving down the street and you hear the ambulance sirens or you see the lights and you pull over for their authority. It's knowing there's a greater power standing in front of him. That's why this demon is on the ground. And even while this happens, even though he knows he's in the presence of a much higher power than he is, the demon speaks to Jesus with this chaos and fear of its future. He is desperately grasping at anything. He cries out with a loud shriek, it says, and he addresses Jesus as the Son of the Most High God. This isn't about Jesus as our Messiah. This is about Jesus, God in the flesh, going to war with Satan. I think it's interesting. If you, if you go back up, go back to chapter 4 and verse 41. That was the story that, G, that Daniel preached for us last week. Uh, we preached on fear and what are we afraid of and what shouldn't we be afraid of. It was awesome. You need to go back and listen to it. But that very end of that passage, after Jesus calms the storm, it says, They were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? That's the disciples talking to one another. Who is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? They don't quite understand who Jesus is yet. Who is this man? They don't have an answer. And yet this question gets carried on into this encounter with the demon. And it is the demons who have the answer. The demons know exactly who he is. Jesus, God in the flesh. And so when the demon addresses Jesus in this way, using this full-on title of, of Jesus, it's making a power play, really. It's trying to use a full name, trying to show his authority. It's kind of like when you're in trouble and your parent uses your full... You know, Timothy, John, Joy, you get over here right now. 
That kind of thing. That's what this demon is trying to pull. By using this full-on title, he's trying to assert some kind of authority. Even though he knows full well what's about to happen. And on top of that, it says he adjures, which is a fancy word of asks, in the name of God, do not torment me. See, the demon, again, he understands the power and authority standing before him. And so he appeals to the highest power he knows, God. A demon is appealing to the power of God, asking that God would rescind God from him. This will do him no good. See, the demons know exactly who Jesus is, and they know exactly the power and authority he brings. This will do him no good. There is no faith. There is no force behind this appeal. He's appealing to God to overthrow God. Remember a couple chapters ago when uh, the Pharisees threatened and they said, Jesus is possessed by a demon. He's working for Satan. And Jesus responded and said, how can a house divided, how can a house stand if it's divided against itself? There is no divided house here. God is not going to overthrow God. This entire scene, the demon kneeling, the addressing of Jesus by his name, asking of, in the name of God, all of this points to a full recognition of the power and authority of Jesus on this demon's very existence. And we see that it was actually Jesus who started picking the fight with the man. In verse 8 it says Jesus had already been telling him, get out of this man. And the demon is scrambling. And so in verse 9, we see something else unusual to what we've seen when Jesus encounters demonic people. Usually it's just Jesus tells them, get out, they get out, that's the end. Here in verse 9, Jesus addresses him and says, what's your name? We don't know why, again, we haven't seen this before, but he asks the demon's name. The demon says, my name is Legion, for we are many. Legion is a title of a Roman guard. It's a military unit of about 6,000 soldiers. So whether he's saying there are 6,000 demons within this man, or he's just saying there's a lot of us in here, we don't really know. But again, this demon spokesperson is trying every tactic to avoid being destroyed by Jesus. The name he gives is evasive. It's clearly not his actual name. He doesn't tell Jesus the actual answer, and even possibly he's trying to intimidate Jesus again. There's many of us in here. What are you going to do about that, Jesus? Jesus doesn't need to know the real name. He doesn't need to know the real answer. Jesus knows he has complete control in this situation. He is not scared or intimidated by one or 6,000 demons. Whatever this demon was trying to do, he realizes very quickly it failed because immediately after he gives this bold statement about how many demons there are, he immediately then is begging not to be destroyed. He knows full well this didn't work. This encounter, again, is showing us Jesus battling and demonstrating his power over all creation, the demonic world as well. He is going to war with Satan. But the only casualties of this war will be those that are opposed to Jesus. And so that brings us to the pigs. In verse 11, it says, Now a great herd of pigs were feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. He gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out, entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. There are going to be some of you who are going to read that and are going to say, I can't believe Jesus would do that. I can't believe Jesus would let that happen. Why would Jesus do that to the pigs? First, if you have ever had bacon and eggs, 
you don't get to have a conversation about this. More importantly than that, Jesus doesn't do this to the pigs. The demons do. The demons are the one who drives the pigs over the cliff. You might say, yeah, but Jesus allowed that to happen. And if Jesus is as all-powerful as we've been talking about, and all these things that the Bible talks about who he is, he's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, he has all of this authority, he probably knew what was going to happen. He probably knew that the demons were going to destroy these pigs. And to you, I'd say, yeah, you're probably right. He probably did know. All the more reason to get them out of this man and drive them into the pigs. Because what the demons do to this herd of pigs is exactly what they would have done to this man. Because it's what Satan does. It's what demons want to do to every one of us. Jesus says it this way in John 10.10, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and life abundantly. Satan wants to kill, steal, wreck, break, destroy everything and everyone. That is his goal. He lies. He only speaks in lies. He attacks. He wants to destroy God's creation. He wants to destroy humans. But really, he just wants chaos, and so he'll settle for 2,000 pigs if that's the best he's going to get in this situation. This is who he is. This is what he does. This is what demons do. Which is why I said this is what sin does to us. Sin alienates us, not only from one another, but from God. When we don't treat sin as seriously as it is, we are giving strength to Satan and to the demons. When we make excuses and rationalizations about why it's okay to engage with this movie or this TV show, knowing full well it is full of all kinds of stuff that brings no glory to God. When we take the truth of Scripture and we see, well, this, what the Bible says, and what I see in culture are different. And so clearly culture is right. I'm going to ignore the Bible and I'm going to follow culture instead even though that culture is built by people who, as we already saw in Ephesians 2, are by nature sinners and children of wrath. We choose culture over Scripture. We choose to make Jesus into our own image and fit our desires and our molds because it's easier than letting the Bible stand for itself and just be the Word of God. And so we pick and choose the parts we like and we ignore and we rationalize and we argue away the ones we don't. We look at our sin and we decide it's not as bad as it used to be. I only do it once or twice a week rather than every day. I can control it. I can maintain it. There is control in your life when it comes to sin. Your sin is controlling you. The more you feed it, the more it grows, the further and further you walk from God. There is no such thing as a little sin. There is no such thing as a white lie, that little slip up, that mess up, or all the other phrases we use to minimize what sin is. Sin is sin is sin. And sin equals death. You might say, yeah, but I'm a Christian. I'm saved by the grace of God. Amen and amen. But you can be saved and you can be not walking with God. One of the famous stories that Jesus teaches, one of the famous parables, the prodigal son. He is the son of the man. He leaves to go do whatever he wants to do, to go walk away. It doesn't change that he's still that man's son. You can be a son or daughter of God and then walk away and not be walking with him. You can be saved and still trapped in the darkness of sin. And so if that's you this morning, if you know you are trapped in the darkness of sin, or you have not let yourself be convinced of that, and you have said, I have control of it, I know what I'm doing, I beg you this morning, confess it, bring it to light, and turn away from it. 
run toward that God who just like in the parable of the prodigal son will meet you with arms wide open to greet you because he loves you. I want you for a minute to just close your eyes for just a second. I want you to try and picture this, this moment with these pigs. Try and put yourself on this hill. Try and envision what it was like to see these 2,000 pigs toppling over this cliff to their death. Because this is ultimately what Satan wants to do to you. For us, we have to use our imagination. And I want you to try and do your best to burn this image into your brain. Because this is the end goal of your sin. This is the end of where that leads you. For us, we have an imagination that we can try and picture this. But for this man, for this demon-possessed man, he sees it. He experiences it firsthand. He will, for the rest of his days, remember where he was and what it was like to know that God stepped into his life and delivered him. These pigs going over a cliff were a tangible memory for this man of God's grace and power in his life. And note that when this happens, the demons had to ask permission. They have to ask permission to enter the pigs because they are subject to the authority of Jesus, even to do something like that, to possess a pig. And so, yes, the pigs die. They go over the cliff and they die. You say, wow, there's a lot of value there. Life was taken away. And yes, God sees the pigs as valuable. They are his creation, yes. But how much more important is this one man to God than these 2,000 pigs? It's the same with you. Your life has value. You are created in the image and likeness of God. You have in you, just by being a human being, value to God because you have in you the image and likeness of the God who made you. And so this scene happens, and naturally those who are taking care of the herd, we see in verse 14 through 17, naturally those who are taking care of the herd, they see this play out and they go running. They saw this man, this demon-possessed man that everybody knows. They saw Jesus interact with him. The herd freaks out. They all end up dead, which the herdsmen, it's their responsibility to keep the pigs alive. So they go to tell somebody, hey, this isn't our fault. And they go tell all kinds of people what happened. In verse 15, it says, people come. They hear this story, and they want to come see what's going on. And in verse 15, it says, they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man the one who had had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. The same man who couldn't be shackled, who couldn't be tamed, was now sitting totally at peace, like any other regular person just sitting with Jesus, and it freaked them out. There wasn't joy. There wasn't excitement. The people didn't rejoice in the restoration or even just the removal of the threat of this man. Instead, they were filled with fear. This shocking transformation overwhelmed them. And the people, rather than thanking Jesus for what he had done, being impressed, being amazed by what he had done, they begged him to leave because his power and authority, all of this, was much too much for them to handle. And you throw in the loss of the pigs and they want him gone. I think for non-Christians, for people outside of the faith, putting their faith in Jesus, I think they see Christianity a lot like these people when they came upon Jesus. They see the church as filled with 
brainwashed fools controlled by the do's and don'ts of the Bible. They think that there is this control that exists over Christians that is punishing and life-sucking and they want nothing to do with it. The fear of what they don't actually understand but they just perceive from afar and it overwhelms them and it freaks them out. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of Christians that look at this and look at Jesus the exact same way. Because as you start to look at culture and we start to grow and learn and we look at culture and we look at scripture and we start to have to ask questions. You have to ask questions like, what if the Bible really is the word of God? What if, and not only that, what if God really is who the Bible says he is? This one creator who made all things. What if things played out? What if history played out exactly how the Bible said it did? What if there is a heaven and a hell, and hell is punishment, and the only way to avoid it is by putting your faith in Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection? What if that's all actually true? What if I really do believe this, and then i got to change my life? Now I have to let God control how I spend my time. Now i got to let God control the relationships I am in. Now i got to let God control the media I consume. Now i got to let God control the way I spend my money. That's too much change. That's too much control to give up. And so instead, we pick and choose the areas we want Jesus in our lives, and we beg Him to stay away from the areas we want to keep to ourselves. See, we want that new life. We want that regeneration. We want that freedom from sin. We want to be like this changed man. We want to escape the bondage of Satan, but we don't want to let Jesus near our web browser search history. We don't want to let Jesus into our heads when that attractive person walks by to know what we are actually thinking about. We don't want to let Jesus into our jobs and see the way we work and see the way we treat our co-workers and the way we treat the people that we only see at our 9 to 5. We don't want to let Jesus into our bank account and actually control our budget and know how we spend our money. Because So instead we say, Jesus, you can have part of my life, you can have part of this, but you let me keep this other stuff to myself. Because we know that Jesus brings change, and he brings new life, and we are content instead with the way things are. Even if that means there is a demonic force walking the hills, we don't want to experience that change. You don't get to pick and choose. To be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, is to give all over to him. To allow Jesus to direct your life. And the reality of that presses in on us and presses in on the part of us that wants to do everything our own way. And what we forget about that, when Jesus says, okay, fine, I will be your Lord and Savior. I will be your King. You've got to give me all of it. What we forget is that when he says, give me all of it, let me take care of it, let me take care of you, is that what he does is he comes to bring life and life abundant, life in excess. He came to show us how and give us the ability to live life to the fullest extent. He not only knows what is best for us, but he shows us it and he calls us into it and he is there to walk with us in it because he is good and he cares for you and he cares about the way you live. After all of this happens, as we jump back into the story in verse 18, Jesus is getting in his boat. He leaves as the people asked him to. And this man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might go with him. And Jesus said, no. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. This formerly possessed man asked Jesus to go with him. Jesus says, no. Which, again, 
kind of weird, right? Kind of odd. I mean, don't you want Jesus? Don't you want loyal followers? Don't you want people who will believe in you and trust in you? This guy's faith in you is rock solid. Wouldn't this be the kind of guy you want as a disciple? Wouldn't his story be the kind of story you want people to hear because of what he has experienced? Yes, exactly. That's why Jesus tells him no. He says, instead, go tell your friends. Go tell your family. Tell them what the Lord has done for you, for the mercy he has shown on you. Which again is different than everything else we've seen in Mark. Because how many times have we seen Jesus perform a miracle, cast out a demon, and he tells the person, don't say anything to anyone. Keep this to yourself. But here, this is just the opposite. He says, go tell people what's happened. Go and share with them. Tell them what God has done for you. And so when this man goes and tells this story to people, he's going to say, Jesus did this for me. So thus, Jesus is telling him, I am God. And when you tell people this story, you're going to tell them of what God has done for you. He says, go share your story of mercy and grace. And that's what he did. He went and he shared his story. He didn't go to Bible school. He didn't have every answer. He just told people what he knew. He knew what his life was like before Jesus showed up. He knew what Jesus did in him and through him. And he knew what his life was like after Jesus. That he was reconciled to himself, to his own mind, back to his community, and most importantly to God. Jesus calls us to a new life and then he invites us to share our story with others. To share about the grace and mercy of a God who would come to earth to die and take the responsibility for our rebellion. To show us grace and mercy. To call us daughters and sons. And as we do, the people will marvel. God will be glorified. We're about to enter into the Christmas season, the holiday season, where the songs on people's playlists, the songs that are getting sung in stores, is about the arrival of God. I mean, you're going to walk into places and you've already, well, really, all right, it's the end of Thanksgiving. We've been doing this since October, hearing Christmas music. And the songs of Christmas are songs about Jesus entering into humanity. There are events and parties and activities that we're all going to get caught up in that ultimately, when you strip it all down, is centered around God entering into humanity. Regardless of the wording or phrasing, the season we're about to enter into, whether you will call it Advent or Christmas or just Happy Holidays, It's a time when people are open to hearing about how God stepped into your life and took you from rebel, helpless, and hopeless to a person who is in a right relationship with him. To one of his children that he loves. And he did that for your benefit and ultimately for his glory. So take advantage of this season and share your story with others because it's a gift that God has given you. And it is a challenge that he has entrusted you with to be part of what he is doing in this world as he goes to war with Satan, as he redeems all things back to himself. Share your story with others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again, Lord, for your word. We thank you for history like this that reminds us who we are apart from you, who we are left to our own devices, who we are without the grace and mercy that you have given us. 
God, help us to never forget that. Help us to never lose sight of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus' life and death and burial and resurrection. Help us to enjoy it and to celebrate it and let it motivate and challenge us and encourage us day by day to be the lights in this world you have called us to be. To share our stories, to share your story of you in us. And Lord, I pray this morning, if, there's no, if there are anyone here that doesn't know you, if there's someone who hasn't put their trust in you, put their faith in you, Lord, that whatever walls, whatever barriers, whatever things are stopping them, Lord, that you would break through those things and show them of the grace and mercy you have for them, for the love you have for them. That they would trust in Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, and resurrection as the only payment for their sins. God, as we go into the world, help us, remind us that we are called to share our story, that we are called to go and tell people of the good news of a God who made them and knows them and loves them. Lord, we ask for your power and your boldness to continue to do this. We thank you and we praise you. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen.